is a reality about Jesus Christ, King over all, greater than everything, and yet we sing, make my heart believe. It is a reality. It's the reality of all things, and yet we are a people that need to call out to God for heart-level change. Please take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, as you turn there, I want to remind you, I should do this more often, but especially for our children who stay in the service, that there are children's notes that are in the racks at the back of the worship center. And so kids, if you don't have one, or maybe it's been a while since you used one and you'd like to, we think that they're a helpful resource uh, for the younger people who are in our church service. Exodus chapter 4, and I would invite you to look with me, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will make your firstborn, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place, on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went together, went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. You can be seated. Children, you could be dismissed to Children's Church. We'll continue this morning in the fourth chapter, the second part of the Pentateuch. And as we do that, I want to remind you that it is a providence for us to see more clearly 
our God. To see what it means to be in relationship with God. To see how serious God takes what we call covenant relationship, promise relationship, established relationships. And so in this section, we're transitioning from the time when there is this uh, theophany narrative, when God speaks to Moses out of the middle of the bush. We're transitioning from there into the time when Moses is with the elders of Israel and going to Pharaoh. And so we're going to talk today about that transition. And the title I've given to it is Feeble First Steps. And there's a reason for that. Because there was that really unusual section where it seems that God is seeking to kill someone. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, we saw two final objections that had come from Moses. There were four in total. Pastor Will last Sunday taught us about the last two of his four objections. The Lord gave explicit instruction to Moses five times, go to Pharaoh. Four times, Moses rejected that. The two that Pastor Will talked about last week are the excuse Moses gave for not being very well spoken. I'm not really good at public speech. That's kind of all of us. The second reason he gives is just, he's all out of ideas, and he just says, just send somebody else. And the Bible tells us that God was angry with Moses, but it says, I'll give you a helper in Aaron. You see that mercy? God's angry, but he says, I'm going to help you. Not going to judge uh, what was the expression smote your ruin on the mountain yeah that was that stuck with us didn't it that's vivid he does not do that but instead he says Aaron will help we're going to find out more about that promise today in fact even before God had said hey Aaron's going to help God had already sent Aaron Aaron was already walking toward Moses So we see God using Moses in this text. And here's what's important for every student of Scripture, every subject of God. It's important that we understand that Moses is not the hero of this story. Wow, Moses is not the hero of the story. Moses is a really feeble servant. And that's true again in this text. And God, again, reveals himself as great and long-suffering and patient and provision to Moses. So in this part of the narrative, Moses is going to take us from the burning bush back to a conversation with Jethro, his father-in-law in Midian, to what I call an infamous campsite, then to Sinai where he is reunited with Aaron, and then to a meeting with the elders of Israel. In all of this transition, Moses operates uh, kind of in a cursory way. He says, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And so we're covering a lot of ground in just a couple of verses. And I think that's intentional. I think Moses wants to get to the bigger picture. You see, the, the title that we've given for this study is Covenant King. Both those words are really important to us. 
there is going to be a conflict between Pharaoh, the most powerful king on the planet at the time, and the king of kings. And Moses is looking forward to getting to that in the story. And so he kind of real quickly says some stuff, and we would raise our hand and go, wait, can you explain that some more? And Moses says, no, no, I'm trying to get to something bigger. But I think these various stories can be tied together in the context of what it means to be in relationship to God. What does it mean to be God's people? To be a possession of God. And so I'm choosing to use three examples of covenant signs. Covenant signs. And all I mean by covenant signs is when you go to the bank to take out a loan, one of the things that happens, the most tedious part that happens, is when you sit at the desk with a loan officer and they slide two pens across to you and your spouse. Because you're going to sign so much stuff that one pen's not going to do it. You each need a pen. And then they're going to lay dozens of legal documents in front of you. And you're not even going to glance at the subject matter of those documents. You're just going to keep signing. If you sat at the desk and said in this covenant entering relationship, uh, I, I'm uncomfortable giving my signature out. <laughs> well, the sign that we're entering into mutual agreement is that we have proof in your signature. You have to sign it. I don't really want to do that. That's kind of what's going to happen here in three phases with Moses. So we're going to see, first of all, God says, when you go back to the elders and eventually to Pharaoh, show him the signs that I've promised I'm going to deliver the people. Then we'll see in the second part where Moses forgets or omits the sign of the covenant. And then the third part, Moses and Aaron show up with the elders and they display the signs of the covenant. So to bring all these stories together, I think that there is a display of signs relating to the promises God has made. These are my people and I'm doing with them what I said I would. So let's pray and then get started in those three. Father, I pray this morning that God the Spirit would lead us through the truth of this text that the miscues and wasted expressions that I might use would be lost and that the truth of this text would pierce our hearts cause us to be conformed from inside out to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his name we pray to you in faith and hope Amen. So let's look at those three. The first one in verses 18 through 23, and I titled this point this way. Reminder to display the sign that had been given. A reminder. When you get there, show them the sign that I gave you to do. Let's look at verse 18. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says to him, can I go and see if the people are still alive? And Jethro says, yes, you can go. Because God had told him to. He said, go back. You don't have to be afraid. The people that were seeking your life are now dead. So Moses takes his wife and his two sons. And he sets out. 
the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power. And I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you are to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that, you may, that he may serve me. If he refuses to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. A reminder from God, when you get there, display the sign that I am with you. You remember God had told Moses, he said, go, I will be with you. And that's not just a comforting expression like, yeah, my my thoughtfulness will be about you and I wish you well. I will be with you. My presence will be recognizable to the people that you convey my message to. So Moses took his wife and his sons and started out on the journey. Moses is relocating to Egypt. Moses is going to go back and integrate and become an Israelite and move his family there. Moses does not know the timeline of everything that's going to happen. His sons are not going to be identified until chapter 18. They are Gershom and Eliezer. Verse 21 through 23. Here God summarizes the plagues by saying the firstborn in Egypt will die. And he says to Moses, display everything, all the miracles, all the signs that I've given you to display. And I don't think all the signs he'd been given to display I don't think it's a reference just to the three miracles. Do you remember the three miracles that God had showed early in their chapter? The one was the staff in his hand, which, by the way, Lord willing, at some point, when the staff gets referenced, I'm going to have time to talk a little bit about the staff, but it won't be today. The staff seems to be really significant symbolism throughout Exodus. He is to take the staff and it turns to a snake, then pick it up and turns back into a staff. Remember that miracle? He used to take his hand, healthy hand, put it inside his cloak, and then pull it out, and it's leprous. Put it back in, take it out, and it's clean and whole again. And then third, he says, well, and, and if that doesn't work, it's almost like this, uh, this auxiliary sort of miracle. Take the water from the Nile, pour it on the sand, and see it turn into blood. I don't think when God tells Moses, show the signs, I don't think he's referring just to those three. I think it's all of the signs. It's the plagues. Ten plagues. It's the exodus itself. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. When you go, show these signs. And then he says this. When you get there, display the evidence that I am the one leading this and say it to Pharaoh And then in verse 21, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God here for the first time introduces a new detail. You might have known about it already. Maybe you were here when we studied through Romans. And we read that account in Romans 9. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Exodus. And you said, yeah, didn't God intervene and and do a work in Pharaoh to harden his heart? And the whole plan of all ten 
plagues would unfold? Because God summarizes the plagues with the tenth one. So one through nine are already presumed. God doesn't think, I wonder if plague five, which no, I don't know what it is. I wonder if plague five will convince him. God references the tenth. Saying, I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. This introduces what we call divine God causation. Causing. God did it. And that makes sense, right? Because when God introduced himself in the verb form, he said, I am the one who causes because I cause. The one who does. Divine causation. Now this doesn't change the fact that God had already told Moses, except by a strong hand, Pharaoh's not going to do what, we, what you ask. So it doesn't change the details, but it does add a what? A doubt? Or a reassurance? Allow me to illustrate. If over the last three months, we as a church were made aware that the Supreme Court was going to decide that Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional. That information was leaked to the public. And we as a church found out about it. And we would seek God's intervention and say, please, God, work through the Supreme Court to do just that. And God relayed to us his answer and said, actually, I'm going to harden the heart of one or two conservative justices, and they are not going to do what you're praying for. You might at first be tempted to say, then this whole, this whole mission, our, our whole prayer is for nothing. But consider it a little longer. Wait, wait. Lord, you are constantly in control of the wishes of the highest judicial body in our land? I don't think God reveals divine causation to discourage Moses. And I hope that you're not discouraged when you hear that. I hope that you hear that your heavenly Father controls the heart of the wicked. Controls the heart of those who would be your adversary. That's not discouraging. That's encouraging. And he says of the one who he controls, you let my firstborn go or your firstborn will perish. The firstborn son. Probably don't have to say much about what it meant to be the firstborn son. In antiquity, the firstborn is really significant. One who is specially favored. One who represents his father in a multitude of cases. And that's true, right, of a king's son, the prince, represents his father. It's true also of God's firstborn in this text, Israel. When God says, Moses, when you get back, 
tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go or his firstborn son is going to die. It's really interesting that God is announcing that someone must die because someone is going to be set free of bondage. This is an early biblical illustration of substitutionary atonement. A substitute who will die in the place so that someone can be set free. God's purpose in rescuing his firstborn son is for worship. A role that Jesus himself fulfilled in his own faithful worship to the Father, notably in John 17. We are called as a church on commission to be watchmen. Like Moses was called to go back and tell Pharaoh, there will be a death penalty for rejecting the command of God. We are instructed, like watchmen on a wall, to sound a warning, there will be death as the wage for your sinning. And I would only add as we go that God provides to all of that evangelism divine causation. He produces fruit. Where we thought that the field was too, the ground was too hard to bear fruit. And God awesomely produces fruit. So first, God tells Moses, don't forget when you get back, show the signs that I've promised this is going to happen. And this will be evidence that someone greater than Pharaoh is making this instruction. Second, we see Moses neglects the sign. Not the one about the miracles or the plagues, but a more important sign. Let's look at verse 24 through 26. And if you feel the need to scratch your head and give a puzzled look, that's okay. At a lodging place on the way, going from Midian, headed toward Egypt, then the Lord met him. I don't know who that is. And sought to put him to death. Not sure who that is either. Might be the same him, might be a different him. Then Zipporah, I know who that is, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right. Here we go. This unusual story that seems to leave out dozens of details has prompted all sorts of vivid interpretations. And I would love, because it's my personality, to clarify all of the ambiguity, but it's not my place. The ambiguity is there maybe for a reason. For example, I don't know if who is being pursued by the Lord unto death is Gershom, the oldest son, which there's some evidence for that because what did we just read? Oldest sons are subject matter. Israel, firstborn son. 
Pharaoh's firstborn son. Gershom is Moses' firstborn son. Okay, maybe the one being pursued, maybe the one lying on death's doorstep is Gershom. Him. Maybe it's Moses. Maybe the one who had neglected the sign of the covenant with Abraham is Moses. I think there's a lot of case for that. Either way, the main point of the text is clear. I would, I would raise one question that is unsettled with me. If Gershom is the one who is being pursued unto death, then why does Moses not intervene in the solution? Why does Zipporah intervene in the solution? So that, that's just a practical question I have. Maybe that leads us to wonder if it's Moses who is literally laying on a deathbed because Gershom had not been given the sign of the covenant in circumcision. Maybe Moses is laying on his deathbed because Moses had never taken the sign of the covenant in circumcision. I don't know. But good news, good news. The main story or the main idea is clear we don't have to know who's sick we don't have to know who's operating we don't have to know if moses is out on a hunting trip when this all happens and that's why zipporah is the one who has to intervene we don't need to know what we do need to know is that a a prophet a messenger in moses was going to go communicate instruction from God while himself neglecting to obey instruction from God. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I have to be very careful because as I teach people, I might offend, transgress, the very thing I'm teaching them not to offend, and myself become accursed. And so Moses is going to say, God cares about displaying the sign of what he promised. And Moses is guilty of omitting the sign of what God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant. God would not tolerate a blatant lawbreaker to present his instruction to his people. So here in Exodus 4.24, we see God seeking judgment because of disobedience. Moses might have lost his life here. Or Moses' oldest son might have lost his life. Just think about this. Moses had just said no to God four times. In conversation. Now he's at a campsite on his way to deliver a message about God's covenant faithfulness and God is angry and putting someone to death at camp. I think that shows us that while God is long-suffering to listen to a creature of the dirt say no four times, he is not going to be trivial or trite about his covenant relationship and its symbolism, its signs. Our God is holy. It's good for the church to continually remember that. And this text reminds us.
Zipporah intercedes. She steps in. We're in the fourth chapter. We're finishing the fourth chapter of Exodus. And you know what we've seen? We've already seen six women explicitly mention as being vessels of God's unfolding providence. There are more women engaging in the progress of this providence than men so far. That's encouraging too, right? She intervenes. She seems to be familiar with the rite of circumcision. She had grown up in the household of a Midianite priest. Probably Moses had relayed the Abrahamic covenant. Moses writes Genesis. He probably had shared at least the oral tradition with Zipporah. Yet somehow he himself had neglected it. Zipporah seems to understand that she should intervene. And she does. She performs the circumcision with a flint stone. The expression she uses then, saying that he is a bridegroom of blood. It seems like there's a domestic disturbance at play, doesn't it? I mean, if you go to your husband, ladies, and say, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Kids, go play in the yard. This seems to have just turned. However, it's helpful for us to understand that that's not a negative expression here at all. In fact, it's a positive one. What Zipporah affirms is that she and Moses are intimately united. In other words, she is affirming, as she participates in the sign of the covenant, that she and Moses are covenant brother and sister, children of Yahweh. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. We could not be more intimately linked as husband and wife. Physically, having children, in our faith, in our obedience to our God. Um, This week, uh, Logan and Casey Schlegel uh, were engaged. Congratulations, both of you. Yeah, we can clap right here in the middle of the service. Um, Logan, you want to wave? That's Logan. We know Casey Schlegel, but we're like, who is this Logan? And why did he not talk to us first? Yeah. Um, and I had had a conversation with Logan a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about, you know, marriage and how long a person should have to be engaged and things like that. Of course, then I shared my story, and my wife and I were engaged like, or knew each other like three weeks before we got engaged. Not quite three weeks. I tell people I could only behave for three weeks, and then I had to convince her she should marry me. I was talking with Logan, and we were talking about the timeline. And I said, honestly, if, if you have Christ at the center of your life, and someone that you're dating has Christ at the center of their life, then something like 95% of the issues are settled. Right? Like if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and if you seek first his kingdom and righteousness, then the rest of the stuff is just details. Okay? That's kind of what she's saying here. She's not cursing him. She's actually affirming that they are both participating in covenant obedience. 
She's affirming we honor the same God. The sign that Moses would perform with his staff were signs that God was in fact doing what he had promised. The sign here is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Listen as I read from Genesis 15. I I want you to be sure that you understand what's happening in these verses. Genesis 15, 12. God says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, They will be afflicted for 400 years. This is Genesis, by the way, not Exodus. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. The Abrahamic covenant promised this Exodus. Promised that these would be a nation to God, a firstborn. And the sign of that was to be circumcision. Our God is holy and true. He is not a God fashioned according to our imagination or our liking. The parameters of our fellowship with God are set by Him. And here, they have been expressed and they've been disregarded. And God operates in justice. First, God says, when you get there, show the signs. These are proofs. I have promised already in Exodus I'm bringing the people out of captivity. Moses is on way to do just that, but he omitted the very sign of the covenant that God had with his people. Then lastly, for this morning, relaying the signs of the covenant to the other messengers. Let's look at verse 27. In verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, And that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Verse 27 helps us understand that Aaron was genuinely and fully convinced of the Exodus plan. Look back up to chapter 4, verse 14. God had told Moses, Aaron is already en route. And here, they're about to be united, and Moses conveys all the information to Aaron. And Aaron believes it. May I ask, why is Aaron quicker to receive the revelation that came out of Moses' mouth than Moses was to receive the revelation that came out of a burning bush? Um, 
maybe that's a good question. Maybe it's a really practical question. Moses is not at this point being called to put his neck on the line. I'm sorry, Aaron. Aaron is not being called to put his neck on the line. While, you see in the text, it says that Aaron's the one that went to the elders, and he said everything he'd heard from Moses, and he did the signs. He's the one. He took probably the staff, he did the signs. Well, that's weird. Is Moses kind of passing the buck? He's not. Moses is not known by the elders of Israel. Aaron probably is an elder of Israel. The very fact that Aaron was allowed to leave Egypt and go to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses is evidence that Aaron was coming and going. And so he probably is one of the elders of Israel. And so he goes to the elders of Israel and says, you know me, you can trust me, this is what I've heard. And I heard it from this messenger, who you may not remember. Or maybe you do remember, and you have some serious reservations about. But why does Aaron believe it so much more readily than Moses believed it? Aaron is not the one that's going to go and stand in Pharaoh's chamber. Moses is. And so there was this self-preservation doubt that was so easy. What, what was Moses, or what was Aaron's part in the, in the mission? To be free, right? Encourage Moses, be a helper to him, and get out. Mo, Aaron's like, yes, of course I believe that. I'll take two. Moses is literally going to put himself in the way of danger. Now, practically, Let me only use the Great Commission as an example. All authority has been given to me, Jesus said. Go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. And I am with you always. And those of us who would fund that global mission say, yes, I believe that. But might the same people sit and say, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that all authority really has. Are there no rulers in all of the closed and violent countries that are operating independent of God's reign? Is he really going to be with me? And so if you're the one being called to go, you might be tempted to say, This word is hard to receive. This great commission is hard to apply. But if you're the one staying, who's being told to support the one going, it's probably easier to hear the message. Uh, Today, um, Kiralee's last Sunday with us, right? Um, We had the chance to get together this week. And so at the end of our service today, uh, if you don't mind, we'd like to have a prayer with you. So what we'll do is at, at the close of our service in a little bit, uh, if you're comfortable, I'd have you come up front. And those of you who are especially especially close to Carolee, of course everyone is, but 
those of you who are especially close can come up and surround her and we'll pray for her as she goes. Why is it easier for some people to believe the Great Commission than other people? Maybe it's the difference between first-hand application and second-hand application. For Aaron, he receives it right away. And then in verse 28, there is this simple and direct. He knew what he had heard from God. And they go right away in verse 29 and 30 to gather the elders, perform the signs, and see the people believe. Verse 31 describes the Israelites' conversion to faith. And like is true in the Old and New Testament, these conversions that are so amazing and eternal are just kind of mentioned in passing. Think about, think about that. The elders and the people believe, and then they move on. They accepted the promise of God the way Romans 4 says Abraham had. Abraham believed the promise, and it was counted to him for righteousness. They believed the promise. God has visited. You know what that means? That means God is in relationship with us. We are his people. They probably didn't know that. And when they heard it, they were amazed. When they heard that he was in relationship with them, he had seen them, he cared about them, and he was going to deliver them. What did they do? They bowed their heads and they worshipped. Probably hearing this for the first time. they would have been otherwise ignorant to the fact that they were the firstborn son of God in covenant. And it reminded me of Romans 10, right? How will they hear except someone goes and tells them? How will they believe? They don't hear. And how are they to hear and believe if... Someone doesn't go. And here are two evangelists telling the elders and the people about God's salvation and they believe and they worship. I hope that in this text we see more clearly the true God who is a covenant king. And that the expressions of that covenant matter. The signs of the covenant are important. God takes his covenant relationship very seriously. That's a good thing. These promises that he makes with sinners, he takes very seriously. And we would want it no other way, right? We are glad that he takes his commitments, his promises Seriously, and therefore the signs of those are serious. For Moses, the sign was circumcision. The Abrahamic covenant. The removal of unrighteous or uncleanliness was the sign. For the church, 
It's baptism. A sign of our covenant relationship in Christ is baptism. Not John's baptism, not the washing away of unrighteousness or or the repentant spirit, but Christian baptism, immersion into Christ, which, by the way, we read thoroughly in Romans 6, 3 through 4, and I read it this morning. Our baptism, our immersion, our inclusion into Christ. This is our sign of covenant. Now, I want to say this word of warning, and I honestly have no one in particular in mind. Maybe you are a confessing Christian. Yours is a verbal affirmation that your only hope is Jesus Christ. That only by his work is God graciously forgiving your sins. But maybe you're here and you've never thought it necessary to participate in Christian baptism. And I I hope this text is used by the Spirit of God to encourage you about how important God takes his promised and personal relationship with his people. I would advise that you not overlook it. If you have not been baptized, I hope that you will come and request the church's affirmation of that. Which, by the way, I'll just say one other pastoral order. There are a lot of people groups who were circumcised. It was something that some people would choose to do. Israel's not the only people who observed circumcision. But theirs was unique. It was ceremonial. It was a right of the people. It was obedience to an instruction that had been given them by God. Christian baptism is the same way. It's instruction from God given to the church for us to steward. And it is a sign of something that has happened, of covenant relationship. We learn here about our God. And while he is a God who judges. That's not just an Old Testament thing. By the way, don't read that camp story and think, oh, wow, the God of the Old Testament. I want to remind you about John 3, 36. John 3. You know the chapter that talks about how God loves the whole world? John three thirty six says, and if they do not believe God's wrath abides on them still. So it's not God of the Old Testament is just, but God of the New Testament is gracious. It's the same God. The God who is angry at wickedness is also a God who makes a way of salvation. We're going to see that throughout the book of Exodus. So I would say this. God says to his servant, show the sign of the covenant. Show it. Show the sign of the covenant. Show the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Show the miracles that I've given you to display that I'm the one initiating, that I'm the one instructing. And my advice to us would be, first, as I just said, show the sign of the covenant in believer's baptism. But also for the Christian, displaying the work of God is important. 
Let your, Jesus says, let your light shine so that people may see the sign in you and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Okay, let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you've given us these accounts of the importance of the display of your promises. And I pray that as we hear both how the messenger is meant to go with a particular evidence of the message, and then we hear how messengers should take seriously the sign of our covenant with you. I pray that if there's, if there's people here who for a variety of reasons maybe have been hesitant to participate in the sign of believer's baptism, I, I pray that your spirit would move and both compel them with joyful conviction and maybe, maybe for some it's, it's comfort. It, it can be a very unsettling thing. And so, for anyone who feels that way, I pray that you would give them a peace that you would gift to your people for their obedience. I pray, Father, that as a church, that we would understand the importance of what it means to have a sort of um, a branding, to be called out by your name, to live to the praise of your glory. I pray that we would understand what that means to be marked that way. And I pray that we would display that so that people may see the work of covenant promise, life in Christ, and bring you praise and glory that is always due to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.